That one got a laugh. Okay, that's good. Well, thank you so much for being here today. We do appreciate your presence with us today. We are wrapping up a message series, a sermon series, whatever you want to call it, and we are calling this series Rise, Healing a Divided Nation. I should have that title memorized by now. Uh, Rise, Healing a Divided Nation, and we've been talking about some stuff that's a little bit sort of kind of political. Have you noticed that? And I tell you what, I'm ready to move on. <laughs> I'm ready to move on to something else. So we're going to finish strong here, and then we're going to move on. And so if you're tired of it, I feel you. I'm a little bit exhausted of it too, so we're going to try to finish strong here and then move on to some other topics. If you're here and you feel like you missed some, like what's going on here? I'm at the tail end of a series, and if you missed some of these other pieces, uh, you can listen to the audio of these messages online at hopeccdelco.com. That's hopeccdelco.com. You can catch the other messages there. So we've talked about a whole lot of things, but the goal of this is we want to actually bring some healing. Um, it seems like our nation is very divided right now. It seems like there's a lot of anger. It seems like there's a lot of hate. And I say seems like because I'm not exactly sure how much division there is. I suspect there may be some sensationalism going on. I suspect that maybe the media is making things seem worse than they are. But regardless, there's some kind of division, some kind of hate, a whole lot of anger going on. And we don't want that. <laughs> and we certainly don't want to contribute to that. We want to help solve that. We want to help heal that. So that's what this message has been about. Every week, um, just about every week of my life, I get emails, I get phone calls, I get stuff in the mail with all of these, uh, I guess you could call them ministry opportunities. I receive stuff from organizations, from uh, Samaritan's Purse, from World Vision, um, some stuff that's like things that our church could do. Um, some global ministry opportunities, help this group of people, help that group of people, some more uh, local opportunities, help this group of people solve this problem, do this, do that. And um, I get a lot of good information sent to me over email or in the mail or phone calls, a lot of good ideas for a lot of good things that we could do as a church. Because there's so many things that churches can do, so many things that we can get involved in, so I get a lot of good ideas. And some of those ideas, they come from you all. You read about something online or you read an article or you see something, you're like, hey, should we do this? Can we participate in that? Is that something for us? And so I get a lot of, a lot of good ideas because there's so many good and worthy causes out there, so many good things that churches can participate in and, and maybe should do and should be involved in. A lot of good things are out there. And so every once in a while, it doesn't happen a lot, but every once in a while I get a little bit, little bit overwhelmed by all the opportunities. I'm like, wow, there's so much good. There's so many good things we can do. And when I found myself starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed, I try to remember this, this famous quote, that good is the enemy of great. Have you heard that before? Good is the enemy of great. I asked Google. I said, hey, Google, who said that? They didn't. Google didn't know. So, um, but there's a few people who have said that or ideas similar to that. Good is the enemy of great. And so as these ideas come up and as I'm sorting through them, I just say, oh, that's good. That's, that, that's good. That's good, too. But what's, what's the really great thing? Now, that can be tough to sort through, right? I mean, that's, that's one of those quotes that it sounds nice. How good is the enemy? Great. That sounds great. But practically, what does that really mean? And so there's another way of thinking. There's another little statement, another little thing that I say to myself that kind of helps me clarify, helps me separate good from great. I think about it like this. Of all the things that we could do, what is the thing that we must do? Of all the things that we could do, what is the thing that we must do? And so it's one thing to say that good is the enemy of the great, but what I try to think of is that could is the enemy of must. Does that make sense? Could, it sounds weird, but you know what Could is the enemy of must. Of all the things that we could do, and this applies to you as individuals, it applies to you as a family, it applies to us as a church, of all the things that you could do with your life, of all the things that you could spend your time doing and spend your money, all the things that you could do, what are the things that you must do? There's going to be a day where you're no longer on the face of this earth. So of all the things that you could do, what is the thing you must do? Before I leave, I must 
accomplish this. Does anybody think about life in those terms? Do we? <laughs> do you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror? What is it that I must do today? What is it? You know, but we should to think about what is it that you must do. And so, like I said, we think about this as individuals and to think about this as a church of all the things that we could do, what are the things that we must do? Now, at this point in our message series, I need to talk to the Christians. Are there any Christians? If there are no Christians here, we can just wrap this up. Are there Christians here? There's some Christians? Okay. A few Christians here today. I need to talk to the Christians a little bit. Because I do believe that for all people, Christian people of faith, people whatever, people who believe, people who don't, for all people, it's an important question to ask. What is the thing that I must do? Not just what I could do, but what must I do? But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we need to have that answer given to us by Jesus. What are the, of all the things I could do, Jesus, what is the thing that I must do? Of all the things that we could do as a church, Jesus, what are the things that we must do? Maybe there are multiple things, maybe it's just one. And so for those of you who are, who are new to Christianity or new to the church thing, um, one of the foundational beliefs or foundational concepts of Christianity is this understanding that we, those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, those of us who call ourselves Christians, we in Jesus have a Lord, someone who lords over our lives, that we who are Christians, we have a master and we are the servants. We have a boss over our life. It's one thing to have a work boss. We have a life boss in Jesus. And so when it comes to how we spend our time, how we spend our money, the decisions that we make, the ideal is that we go to Jesus and get those answers from him. And so when we ask the question, what is it, of all the things that I could do with my life, of all the things that we could do as a church, what are the things that we must do? We have to let Jesus answer that question. If we don't, we can get to all kinds of trouble. <laughs> and we can be spinning our wheels. I'm just thinking in terms of being a church, of all the things that we could do, we could do. Every good idea that comes down the pipe, if we just did everything, we'd do nothing. <laughs> We could spend a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources pouring our energy into things that really aren't the must thing on the list. Does that make sense? And so we need to allow Jesus to answer that question for us. What is it that we must do? Of all the things that are good, good, good opportunities, all things that we could do, what are the things that we must do? And so to answer that question, we go to Jesus, and the way that we do that is, of course, we go to Jesus in prayer. That's just such an important part of the Christian life. It's not a side thing. It's not a like, oh, yeah, there's also prayer. That's like so central. Praying. Jesus, what is it you would have me do with my life? What is the thing I must do? Praying as a church. church you know, here we are. We've been created. We're here in this community. What are the things that we must do? Please inform us, Jesus. We go to God in prayer. We go to Jesus in prayer. But beyond that, we have this amazing resource, the Bible. We have this amazing resource, source where the words of Jesus have been written down and captured and saved for us this day. We have in this book the first, the first and it's a big book, it's made of 66 books. It's one book that's made of 66 books. But the first four books in the New Testament, they're Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are four historic biographies of the life of Jesus, what he said and what he did. We don't just have one biography of the life of Jesus. That would be wonderful. That would be so valuable to us. We have four Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're given four different perspectives of the life of ministry of Jesus. And so as we're seeking to answer this question, Jesus, what is it we must do of all the things that we could do? What is it we must do? We can look to Jesus' teachings. And so those books, those biographies, they're important. They're valuable resources because we can read Jesus' instructions. What did he teach his followers to prioritize? What did he tell his followers that we must do? But not only that, not only do we have the teachings of Jesus, we can learn from his example. Look at his life. What did he prioritize? What did he spend time doing? What was the must-do item on his to-do list? What was that must-do item? We can see and learn from his example. 
And whatever was important to him, if we're going to be his followers, if we're his servants, if we are his people, then whatever was important to him needs to be important to us too. Doesn't that make sense in theory? What was important to him needs to be important to us. And so before we can learn from the example of Jesus, there are a couple things that we need to keep in mind about Jesus. Um, Jesus, and this is just like one of these mind-blowing things, he was fully God and fully man, okay? That means that he was 100% divine, 100% God, but he was also 100% human. Um, Mathematically, that doesn't add up. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so we learn in the book of Philippians that... um, that Jesus did this thing, he emptied himself out, he poured himself out, he, he, he did this thing where he emptied himself of his grandeur, of his status, and he put these limitations on himself to become a human being. And as a human being, Jesus was limited. As I, like I said, he put these limitations on himself. He couldn't be awake 24 hours a day. He couldn't be in more than one place at one time. He had a limited amount of energy for each day, just like you and me. He had a limited amount of passion that he could pour into things, just like you and me. And he couldn't solve every single problem that every single person had on the face of the earth because he limited himself in that human form. And so he spent his time ministering to one specific group of people. Of all the people in the world, he came to the Israelites, the nation of God, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, they're all the same thing. He came to the Israelites to be one of them and to minister to them. And so we need to understand that about Jesus is that he was confined to one place and one time in his human form. He put those limitations on himself to accomplish a specific mission. The other thing that we need to understand about Jesus is the world that he lived in, the world that he ministered to, the people that he was among. Um, here we are, it's, it's you know, modern day America, and there's so many of us would say that we're just, you know, we're faced with so much oppression, and there's so much discrimination, and there's so many bad things that are going on. Listen, compared to what the first century Israelites went through, this is nothing. The first century Israelites, the world that Jesus was born into, the world that he grew up in, the people that he lived among, they faced a level of oppression and persecution, the likes of which you and I have never experienced and we probably never will. And you may have faced some some big old discrimination and persecution in your life, but the level at which they experienced this is just ridiculous. They faced political oppression, like I said, on a level we we don't even know. We've never experienced this. This was a nation who was barely a nation at all. They did not have their own king. They had this little kind of puppet form of government. They were ruled by the Romans. And before the Romans, it was the Greeks who were ruled over them and lorded over them. Now it was the Romans that were lording over them. And the Romans, they could basically do whatever they wanted to this community of people, to the Israelites. They could tax them however much they wanted. Um, There were people who were put in jail um, because they couldn't pay their taxes. Roman soldiers, I mean, you talk about the mistreatment of women. Uh, Women were abused. Women could be sexually assaulted. Uh, If you were a man, if you were a father, and if you couldn't pay your taxes, they could take your spouse, they could take your daughters, take them, and, and just have them. I'll leave it at that, okay? And they were theirs. They would be slaves or they would be prisoners. So you had people who were being punished unjustly. There were people who were being put to prison without any kind of trial whatsoever, And that's the thing about the tax thing. If a Roman soldier showed up at your house and said, well, that's an awfully attractive daughter. I'm going to raise your taxes. Oh, you can't pay? I'll just take her. They could do that to the people. It was was a terrible time. Like I said, the level, I I can't even describe how bad it was for these people. The discrimination was extreme. Oh, you're Jews. You're one of those Jews. You're one of those Israelites. How's that thing with God working out for you? Not too well, huh? They were discriminated against. They were judged. They were persecuted. It was it was terrible. I mean, ageism, sexism, racism, all the isms that you could deal with, that's what they had to deal with back then. 
And Jesus came into this world. He didn't just show up as an adult. He was born into this world. And he experienced this persecution, this discrimination, this oppression firsthand as an Israelite. He saw it. He experienced it. He knew it. He felt it. That's the world. All these issues. You think about the issues that we're faced with today. There are a lot of issues that we're dealing with today. I mean, some of them um, have just been around for a long time. Some of them are relevant to today. But, but the issues of Jesus' day were, were huge and, and not theoretical. I mean, every day of, of being a Jewish person, being in Israel, every day of your life, you battled some kind of oppression. And we're trying to protect your family and we're trying to protect yourself. I know, I'm, I, like, I, I just can't stress this point enough. It was so bad. And that's the world that Jesus came into. We need to understand that about, about Jesus and the world that he lived in. And so he came into this world, and there were so many good causes, so many big problems that he could have addressed, could have dealt with, problems he could have solved and had the power to solve. And so of all the things that he could have done, what, was the, what were the things that he were on his must-do list? We take a look at that. Um, in uh, the Israelites, part of what, what kept them going and part of what um, kept their, their hopes alive was they had this prophecy. Um, they had lots of prophecies about a hero that would come one day. And so as the people would gather together and kind of lament together and say, I can't believe this. You know, my wife is just taken from me or my, you know, my husband's locked up. He's been put in jail. There is no trial. And I don't, know, I don't know if he's alive or dead. As they would complain and as they would commiserate together, there was some little bit of hope that would sneak in every once in a while. And someone would pipe up and say, hey, but what about, what about the prophecies? Didn't God, doesn't God still love us? I know we haven't heard from him for a long time, but doesn't God still love us? Didn't he talk about sending us a hero one day, someone to save us, a hero, a savior, a messiah, a champion, someone who would come and, and help us? And there was people, and there were plenty of Israelites, and I don't know the exact number of percentages, but there were plenty of Israelites who kind of checked out on God. God, if you loved us, you'd save us from this. If you loved us, God, you wouldn't allow this to be happening. But there were others that held out that hope, that hope for a hero. He's coming, right? There's going to be someone to save us, someone to fix all this. And so they held out that hope, and then here comes Jesus. We're taught that he begins his teaching at the age of 30, and so he starts teaching people, and right away people notice something different about him. The Gospels tell us that people noticed his teaching was different. He taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. He taught as one who actually knew what he was talking about. He had this authority. The Hebrew word is shmiha. He had the shmiha. He knew what he was talking about. Now, they're teachers of the law. They could just give their interpretation of the law. They could give their, you know, their opinions about the law. But here comes Jesus. Says, I'm not giving you an opinion. I'm not giving you my take. I'm just telling you the truth about God. And people noticed that. And the whispers started. The buzz started. Well, do, you think this is, do you think this is him? Is this, is this the hero? Is this the savior? Is this the champion? The buzz started. And as his teachings continued, the buzz continued. And, and there were some different differences of opinion about what this Messiah would be like, what he was going to do. Now, some of the people thought this Messiah, this Savior, would be like the new high priest. They needed a high priest. They needed someone to rule over their worship, to rule over their faith. And the thing is, part of this Roman oppression, the Romans had corrupted their system of worship and had influence with the priest and kind of could appoint their own priest and say, okay, you're going to be in there. So they had corrupted the system of worship, so much so that there were people who had checked out. There were Jewish people who said, you know, we're just going to go worship God in the desert because this whole system is corrupt. And so some people thought, well, this Messiah, he's going he's to fix this corruption that's in the religious system. He's going to be our new high priest. But most of the people thought this Messiah was going to be a king who will raise up an army, overthrow the Romans, and bring back the glory of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel used to be the superpower of the world. He's going to bring that back. 
And so here comes Jesus on the scene. He's got this special insight into God. He's doing this teaching. There's this buzz circulating about him. He gathers people together. The crowd starts to form. Word catches on. There's a big crowd of people that show up. He teaches them on the side of the mountain. We call it the Sermon on the Mountain because that's, that's how creative we are with our titles. But he gives this Sermon on the Mountain to all these people gathered to hear him speak. And that Sermon on the Mountain, it's, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7 if you want to you know, read that this afternoon before the football game. There's a football game tonight, right? But Matthew, Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but that begins with what we call the B-attitudes, the B-attitudes. You've heard those maybe? He had some kind of background in church or Sunday school. The blessed are the, you know, you know all those? Blessed are the. And what are some of the things that he says? All these people are gathered. And like I said, they're thinking, is this him? Hopefully optimistic. Is this the one? And he starts saying that they're blessed. Or blessed if you prefer. Blessed. I like blessed. Blessed. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you who are trying to create peace. I know it's a time of division. I know you're angry with Romans, but blessed are you who are, who are trying to be peacemakers. And blessed are those who are hungry for righteousness. Blessed are those people who want to see the right thing happen. It's not happening right now. And so all throughout that, take a look for yourself. I mean, Matthew 5, he's saying, blessed are you for what you will have. Blessed are you. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are grieving. You've had some loved ones ripped out of your life unjustly, but blessed are you for you will be comforted. For you will become children of God. And I don't know if there was any pushback from the crowd. I don't know if anybody raised their hand and said, Jesus, we don't feel very blessed. We're too oppressed to be blessed. Is that a saying? Too oppressed to be Too oppressed to be blessed. Put that on a shirt. No, don't do that. I don't know. Was there pushback? What are you, okay, you're saying that we will, there will be some kind of, we will be given peace, we will be given reward, we will be given comfort. But what about, what about now, Jesus. And if we will be blessed, if there's some kind of thing that's coming, how soon? How soon? I mean, is it next month? Is that when we're going to receive this blessing? Are you going to overthrow the Romans next month? We've got to wait a few years. What's your plan? You've got to form an army first. When is this blessing going to come? And so Jesus continues his teaching. Again, dealing with people who faced all the I mean, extreme levels of persecution. Later on in Jesus' ministry towards the end, we read about an occasion where he multiplies loaves and fishes. Have you heard about this? This is another one of Jesus' greatest hits. And so we learn from the Gospels that Jesus actually performed this miracle on on at least two occasions. And so he does this thing, and he has this ability to feed people. There are people who are gathered to hear him teach. And again, you just, I I wish I could be there in that crowd, the anticipation, the hope. What's going to happen? Is today the day? Is he going to overthrow the Romans today? What's going to happen? So people are spending time with him. People are spending their day with him, and they're hungry. And he takes the loaves, he takes the fishes, he multiplies them, he performs his miracle before their eyes, and he feeds all of them. Now, this, just was, this wasn't just like some kind of like parlor trick or whatever. Here, here are people who were legitimately poor and who were legitimately hungry, and he satisfied that immediate need, that real, tangible, immediate need. You're hungry, I'm going to give you something to eat. Wow. And so the scripture tells us in, in John's gospel, and part of this passage is what Brindy read for us, it's in your bulletin, that after this happened... He dismissed the people. They went back home. And so Jesus spent some time by himself. And then he, he crosses over the shore. And, and the people find him. The next day, the people go looking for him. And we're talking about hundreds, thousands of people go looking for Jesus. They go looking for him. And you know why they went looking for him? Because they were hungry. That's the guy with the fish and the bread and all that. He teaches some great things too. But he fed us. And we have this urgent, immediate need. We got no money. We got no food on the table. Let's go to Jesus. He took care of us before. He'll take care of us again. It's the next day. And they go to Jesus. And you should read this, all right? You got a lot of reading to do before the game tonight. You should read. Just read the rest of that chapter. 
where's my bulletin? It's read the rest of John 6. See what happens there. Because it's funny because the people, they kind of try to bait him into performing the miracle again. Oh, you did this. Well, can you still do it? You know what I mean? It's like one of those things. And Jesus calls them out on it. And remind, just remind, be reminded of this fact. Jesus could have done it. He could have performed this miracle again. But he speaks to them. He says, you're looking for me not because of the signs I perform, but because you ate and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has placed a seal of approval. And he goes into this explanation. He says, guys, you're here because you want to be fed. Read it for yourself. Don't allow me just to paraphrase it for you because that's all I'm going to do right now. He says, listen, you think I'm here to meet this physical immediate need? I'm working towards something much bigger than that. Don't, don't spend your energy working for food that will spoil, for food that won't last. If you think I'm going to meet that need, that's not going to happen today. And Jesus starts talking about himself as my flesh is the real food and my blood is the real drink because that's what's going to give you eternal life. Not just life in this here and now, not just feed you, not just satisfy you now, but I can give you eternal life. And it's as if the crowd of people said, that's too obscure, that's too far out, we're hungry right now. Just feed us. I mean, this spiritual food you're talking about, whatever, we need real food. We're hungry now. And he had the power to meet that need, but he didn't. And they left him. Thousands of people had followed him. Thousands left. At the end of the day, he was down to 12. Oh, that's the kind of person you are? Fine. Down to 12 followers. His original 12 disciples. That's my daughter crying, so... It's, it's, hard, it's tough to zone that out. <laughs> She's sad about it. You know what I mean? That's how it was a real thing. You're going you're gonna to send us home hungry? And he did. He could have met that need, but he didn't. But there was still that hope. I mean, that's the thing. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have internet. They didn't have news coverage. So there were people who experienced that and the people who didn't. And so here Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the day that we call Palm Sunday now. So this is at the very tail end of his ministry. It's at the very end. Now, Jesus, the scriptures tell us, the gospels tell us, these biographies of Jesus tell us that he had avoided going to Jerusalem at different times because he was concerned that the people were going to take him by force and make him their king. That's how serious it was. It's like, Jesus, you seem a little hesitant. We're just going to do this for you. Here's our new king. And so he had resisted going to Jerusalem at different times, but now, the time, now was the time. Now was the right time. And so he goes into Jerusalem his disciples steal, I mean, borrow a donkey, bad approval. They borrow this donkey, and he comes down the main road, and the people see him. He's like, okay, this is it now. This is it now. We had a couple false starts here. We weren't sure. What, this is it. And they grab those palm branches, and they start waving them. And what do they say? Hosanna. 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 Did you ever say that in a church service? Hosanna. 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 Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the... That's for the Catholic friends. You know that? Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means? Does it mean anything or is it just a word? <laughs> save, save us, but more literally, Lord, save us now. Lord, save us now. It's like a command right here in the present. Lord, save us now in the immediate. Lord, save us now. And they wave the palm branches and some of the religious leaders gather together and they say, you can't do this. You can't let the people shout like this. 
then you're going to stir up trouble from the Romans. Whatever your agenda is, we don't want trouble from the Romans. And Jesus says, I can't stop this. If they all were quiet, the rocks would start to shout. It's a weird thing that he says, but I just feel like that captured the, the, the tension of the time. It's like this is such an urgent need and the people feel it so, so severely that even the stones would shout out, this needs to happen. These people, they need something to happen for them now and they're shouting, Lord, save us now, Lord, save us now. And Jesus makes it through the crowd, makes it to the end, looks over the city of Jerusalem and he starts to weep. He starts to cry over the people. He says, oh, Jerusalem, if you had only known what would have brought you peace, but it has been hidden from you. And he weeps over the city because he knows. He knows what's about to happen. He knows what's about to happen to himself. He knows he's about to be rejected. And he knows what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. A few decades later, the Romans would, would surround the city and capture it and kind of force the people to, to starve to death um, and destroy the city. And so he knew that was coming. And he also knew this, okay? And this is my interpretation, so take it for what you will. I believe he also knew this. He knew he was about to let down a whole lot of people in a very major way. This is the major failure of Jesus. He failed to meet the expectations of the people. Jesus didn't fail, okay? I just put it that way to be dramatic, all right? He didn't fail, right? But he did not live up to their expectations, they wanted something for him, from him. And so they say, save us now, save us now, save us now. The day goes by. Where's the, where's the re rebellion? Where's the army? Where's the overthrowing? What's happening? Nothing happens Monday. He's just teaching more about God and eternal life. Oh, my goodness gracious. Come on, man. He did not, he did not do what they wanted him to do. Again, politically oppressed, distressed, poor, enslaved practically people wanted Jesus to do this to free them, and he had the power to do it, and he chose not to. And we wonder why they had him crucified. We wonder why the crowds turned on him. Of course they turned on him. You're saying you're the Son of God. You're saying you're the Messiah. You, if you really were those things, you would help us, but you're not. Crucify him. Crucify him. And they did. Jesus, why? Why didn't you address these important issues of your day? You had the problem, to, you had the, the ability to solve these problems. Why didn't he? Why didn't he? Should we close this week and we'll do a cliffhanger? I'll tell you next week, kind of a thing. <laughs> tell you next Sunday. No, I'm not going to do that. The reason that Jesus didn't solve all those problems for the nation of Israel, the reason that he didn't address all of those issues, is because Jesus came to address a much much, much bigger issue, a much more profound problem. You know, hunger, sickness, discrimination, all these things, are, they're big issues, but Jesus came to tackle the biggest issue and the biggest problem. And you know what that problem was? The problem of sin. The problem of sin. What did you think I was going to say? Some of you look a little, oh, just the problem of sin, is that it? And that's kind of how the Israelites felt. Oh, the problem of sin, that's what, no, no, we, sin, whatever. We want, we want to be fed, you want to stay, we want freedom. Sin, you're here to take care of sin, what do you mean? Jesus came to solve the problem of sin. Now, sin, that's a, I mean, that's a really big issue, and maybe one day we'll do like a whole sermon series on sin. That'll be a lot of fun. I invite your friends to that. But this whole thing of sin, 
Sin is a big problem. It's not just a big problem. It's like, well, it's, you know, it's like if you had to rank all the problems, it'd be number one and then there's number two. And like, it's like number one and then like the next other problem down is maybe like 16. It's such a big problem because it affects everyone who's ever walked the face of the earth except for Jesus himself. The problem of sin. And it's basically twofold, and I'm oversimplifying here, but part one of the problem is how it affects the here and now. It's how we treat it. It's, it, it's what causes us to be selfish. It's what causes us to do our, turn a blind eye to the needs of other people. It's what causes us to be rude. It's what causes wars. It, it's what causes um, um, fighting over Facebook is sin. It's what causes all these problems is sin. And so the reason, part of the reason that Jesus addressed the issue of sin is because everything else stems from that problem. Poverty, discrimination, hate, anger, abuse of other people, it all stems from sin. Instead of, instead of just treating the symptoms of sin, Jesus treated the cause. He treated sin itself. How did he do that? Well, like I said, sin has two parts to it. There's the sin that affects us in the here and now. So what he did is he taught us how to treat one another. That's how he addressed the problem of sin in the here and now, in the immediate. Love one another. How do you put it that way? Treat other people the way you want to be treated. Same thing, same idea, same principle. He taught it that way. Love your enemies. If I wasn't clear about that, love your enemies. Love your neighbor. And if you weren't sure what neighbor means, it means every other person. That's the message of Jesus is you've got to take care of each other. And people probably push back and say, Jesus, but I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way. It's not about how you feel. It's how you act, how you treat and care for one another. He gave us these rules. He gave us these rules. I mean, we have them right there. It's here. It's at the Gospels. We have them. So that's how he, he tackled and addressed the problem of sin, that first part of the problem. Because that's, like I said, everything else, all the other problems we have stem from sin. But then there's the other problem with sin. And there's the second part of the problem, which is much, much bigger than the first. It's the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. Now this book, the Bible, it tells us, let me, let me make this personal. <laughs> I read this book and there's a lot of things that I read and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I'm so excited. Oh, God loves me. That's fantastic. But then there are other things I read that I'm just not comfortable with or happy about. But here's the thing. I believe that I'm not required to be comfortable with what the Bible says in order for it to be true. And one of the things that we learn in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Romans, is that 100% of the population has to deal with this issue of sin, and 100% of the population, we all fall short of God's standards, and that 100% of every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth, we all deserve hell as the consequence for our sins. We're talking about the problem of hell. Okay. All these issues in our world today, and all these people who need help. But what about the problem of hell? Is, could there be that? Because that's, that's eternity, okay? And listen here, you, you got to know my heart. I'm tempted to back off this and say, well, you know, eternal separation from my Like, it's big. It's eternal separation from God. It's eternal punishment because we fall short of God's standards. I'm not comfortable with that, but that's what the Bible tells us. The Bible also tells us some good news. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus addressed and solved the issue of sin. He addressed it in the here and now by teaching people how to live, by teaching people how to behave, by teaching people how to treat one another and how to respond to God, how to relate with God. He taught people that. And then to deal with the bigger issue of sin, the consequences of sin, he died on the cross in our place. The Bible writes about sin. The Bible writes about the consequences of sin as if we owe God some kind of huge debt. We're never going to pay it back. 
We're never going to pay it back. I mean, the sin issue in the here and now, we can kind of manage that a little bit, right? Just try to be nice or try to love people or keep your nasty comments to yourself. We can kind of manage the sin thing in the here and now, but the consequences of sin, there's nothing we can do anything about. And that's one of the ways that the message of Christianity is different from any other philosophy or, or worldview or religion. All these other systems say you can manage it, you can, you can take care of yourself, you can get yourself to a heaven, you can get yourself to enlightenment, you can get yourself to paradise, to nirvana, you can do it. Jesus comes along and says, you can't do it. There ain't nothing you can do. You can try to follow all my rules and still you're not going to get yourself there because you're not worthy. But I'm going to make you worthy by my blood. We owed God a debt we could not pay back, but because God loves us, he said, I do not want to be separated from my children for all eternity. I want to be together with them. And so Jesus came to the cross and did this mysterious, awesome, tough-to-understand thing where he paid that penalty in our place. He addressed the issue of sin in the here and now. He solved the problem of sin and death. And we're told that everyone who receives that gift, we're told it's a gift, everyone who receives that gift, you don't have to receive it. You don't have to. You can say no. But everyone who receives that gift will be united with God the Father in heaven for all of eternity. You will be in paradise where there is no more discrimination, where there is no more sexism or ageism, where there's no more Facebook, I hope, in heaven, right? That's the gift that you are given in Jesus Christ. Of all the things that Jesus could have done, of all the issues he could have addressed, he spent 100% of his focus addressing the issue of sin. And everything else that he did fed into that one issue that he was targeted on because that's the big thing. That's the only thing. That's the must-do on his must-do list. It's the one thing because we couldn't do it for ourselves. There's a, I'm going to, yeah. So Batman, 1989, all right? Michael Keaton, everybody see Batman, 1989? Show of hands, show of hands. I want to know who saw Batman, 89. Okay, all right. There's this line. Michael Keaton has as Bruce Wayne and Vicki Vale's love entry. He's like, why are you doing this thing? Why are you going out there and being like a bat and all this stuff? And he says, because nobody else can. All right, that's kind of a dramatic, almost silly line and a little bit egotistical. But this is the thing of Jesus. Why did he come in to solve this problem of sin? Because nobody else can. You can't. I can't. He did. It's done. And so, for, you want to clap for that? Go ahead, clap for Jesus. Yes, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. He did it. He did it. He solved that problem. So, back to the question for us as a church. Of all the things that we could do as a church, of all the issues that we could try to tackle and could try to address, and there's poverty and there's local things and there's global things, of all the things that we should and could do, what is the thing that we must do? We've got to address the sin problem. We have to address the sin problem, how it impacts our lives in the here and now, and the consequences of sin. We have to address that. We have to do two things, and this is what Jesus told us. He said, go and make disciples. That's what, before, after the resurrection and before the ascension, he says, go, you guys, now go to make disciples. And what that means is, you teach them everything I taught you. All the boundaries that I gave you, you give to them. And then tell them what I've done for them. Give them the opportunity to receive eternal life. So that's what we have to do. We have to address the sin issue. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? I mean, it's especially difficult because we don't see it. Like people in your life and people that, you're, that you work with, and we don't see that as being the issue. You know, you know uh, the economy is the issue, or some other thing is the issue. That's not the No, sin is the issue. How do we address this? How do we address the issue of sin? Any ideas? I've got one. <laughs> 
I've got an idea of how to address this, but this is a big idea, and I'm almost afraid to share it with you because if we're going to do this right, it's going to take a lot of people, it's going to take a lot of money, it's going to take a lot of time, it's going to be a very big thing. Okay, here it is. And I ain't come up with this idea, by the way. I read about this in the New Testament. <clears throat> Here's what I think we need to do as a church to address the issue of sin. First off, you all as individuals, I feel like you all, we all as individuals, we need to be intentional in our lives, working on the people in our lives, helping them, I don't know, see right from wrong, helping them see the error of their ways, you know, loving on them, caring for them. That's what we need to be doing as individuals. But then as a collective, there's this relationship that's supposed to exist in the church between the individuals who make up the church and the collective. It's like the collective partners with the individuals to help you do your thing. Does that make any sense? It's weird. But as a collective, what we need to do is we need to create some kind of opportunity where the people in your life, where you can invite them to some kind of an event. I'm not an event guy, but we need to do some kind of event. We need to have an opportunity where you're, you know, you're praying for people, you're loving on people, you're working on people, and then you invite them to this event where they can experience the community of God, where they can learn more about those boundaries and hear about salvation in Jesus and have the opportunity to accept that gift. That's what we need to do. So you do your thing, and then we do our thing collectively. Does that make sense? So we need to have some kind of event, and it's got to be big. And, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a one-and-done thing. I think we have to do it on a regular basis. You know, maybe once a week. Once a week, have an event where we gather together, where we go over those boundaries, where we're addressing the sin issue. We're talking about the boundaries of God, and we're talking about receiving eternal life in Him, giving people the opportunity to do that. And that event should be made up of a lot of different components. I mean, we need people who are just, like, there to care for others and love on others. We need people who, like, will be greeters when people come in so they can make them feel welcome. And we need snacks so people that feel, you know, part of that community. And we need, like, some music. We need some music. We need to be singing about our faith together. There's a thing that happens when you sing together. It helps build a sense of community. Did you know that? And so we need to sing some songs together. That means we're going to need musicians and a lot of volunteers. We need the Scripture read we need someone to come up and read the Scripture, maybe not the whole Bible. Again, if we're doing it every single week, we don't have to have somebody read the whole Bible. We can do just a little piece, and then we need to have somebody come up and talk about it. Um, you know, I'm willing to do it, but it doesn't have to be me every week. Somebody can talk about it so we can learn these boundaries and, and learn about salvation and have the opportunity to receive Him. We need to pray. We need to give people an experience, right? Wait a minute. We already do that. My point is this. I just want to clarify why we do this thing every Sunday, okay? That's my first point. This isn't about Happy Time Christian Club, okay? This is about addressing the issue of sin because this is the one thing that affects all of us and it needs to be addressed. That's what we're doing when we gather together here on Sunday mornings. That's the first, why I'm bringing, first reason why I'm bringing this up. Second reason is this. It's time for us as a church to take it to that next level. It's time for us to do even better on Sunday mornings. You know what it's like to invite people to come to this church on a Sunday morning and you have to make all those excuses? You know, it's like, oh, we're not quite there yet. We're not quite established. And, you know, you never know what you're... Like, we need to stop that. We need to be better at what we do on Sunday mornings. That's tough for me to say that because I remember back when it was like two people standing up and four people in the audience. And, you know, I remember back when it was nothing. And so we have grown so much, and thank you so much to all of our volunteers who have made this happen, who are greeting, who are doing music. I mean, we don't just have some guy in a CD. We got a band. We got a whole children's church team, as opposed to just, I think it was just my wife who did it for a while. <laughs> like, we've got it. We, we're, we've, we've grown so much, but we have more room to grow, and we have to take that next step as a church. 
We want to make this an experience. When you invite your friends and family members and coworkers, you don't have to apologize. Well, I'm sorry, that wasn't quite right. You know what I mean? We want to make this a wonderful opportunity for people to experience Jesus Christ so we can address that sin issue, giving people an opportunity to live better and to, more importantly, receive salvation. And so that's why those cards, did you see those cards when you came in? What is this on my seat? That's what these cards are about. We're looking for some more volunteers to make this a better experience for the people that we invite on Sunday mornings. And we're specifically looking for some people to help us as we take this next step. And my big vision here, my plan is, I love to see all these pieces fall into place before Easter. That gives us 69 days, I believe, to get all these pieces into place, to gear up, so that you can start working on your people now, inviting them to Easter Sunday to join us at Hope. And so specifically, there are a whole bunch of things that we need as a church, but specifically, try to narrow down what are our key items of need here at a church. We need people to help us set up. We've got people, did you realize setup starts at 9 o'clock? People sweeping the floors and putting the chairs out. God bless you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you. We could use some more help with that, and specifically, if you want to come in, and, and if you would, would help us out with that, you wouldn't have to be here every Sunday. We could kind of swap out some people and create a rotation. That would be fantastic. We could use some help with setup. We could use some more greeters in the back. We've got a great team of greeters who welcome people as they come in. We want to add to that team because that's such an important piece of what it means to be a church and giving people a positive impression of who Jesus is. If we could have some more greeters, that would be fantastic. And we'll do a little greeter training. It won't take you long. After Sunday, we'll do a little greeter training. We could use some more people on the soundboard. Uh, what it, how, you know, how am I really solving any problems? By running that? Because you're, you're addressing the problem of sin. You're helping us make this, this event take place. So we could use some help with a sound. Well, I don't know how to use a soundboard. We'll teach you. We'll teach you. We want to have a rotation so people could come in and use the soundboard. It'd be great. You know, service starts at 1030. If you could be here earlier, we'd appreciate that. So we need people on sound. There's these lyrics that we put up on the screen so that people can read so we don't have the books that we're looking from. If we could have some more people volunteer to run that PowerPoint, to run that slideshow... It's not that hard, but it's so essential. You know what I mean? It's not a big time commitment, but it's so essential to make this a positive experience. We've got a wonderful children's ministry team. And we could say, you know what? We're there. We've arrived. We're good enough. But we're not going to do that. We want to take it to that next level because your friends, your family members, they're going to come in with their kids, and we want to give them a wonderful place for their children as well. So we'd love to have some more children's church teachers. Let me talk to everybody who's on the, the, the team here, okay, who's already working with children's church and all that. Some of you are like doing nursery or you're assisting, but it's time for you to step up and be teachers. You've got the gift. You've got the ability. So if you're assisting right now and if you're kind of laying back, maybe it's time to step up and be a teacher. And for those of you who aren't part of that team and you've got that gift and you like working with kids, join that team. Why? So you can help us address the biggest problem that's ever existed, <laughs> the problem of sin. And then we could use some people to help us. We'd love to have this ministry started. We've got a powerful prayer ministry going here. We'd love to have some people who would stand up here at the end of service and just be willing to pray. You know, if someone comes in and they've got a need, they want a prayer partner, just to pray with them. We've got two volunteers already. We want to fill that up a little bit more before we make that ministry official. So if you want to be a part of that, that's what you can do tangibly, practically, to address the biggest problem that's ever faced humankind. And if it doesn't feel big enough for you, well, it is. The stakes have never been higher. And so you can take that card. You can fill it out if you want to participate in one of these ministries. There's no obligation. There's no pressure. You can leave that card in the seat behind it. You don't have to do that. But we want to make this an experience where your friends, where your family members, where your coworkers, where your neighbors can come in and have this issue addressed, the biggest problem that has ever faced mankind, the issue of sin. Some of you who are here right now, you've already personally benefited from this time, from this experience. You know what it's like. 
You know that, okay, it's just an hour on Sunday morning, but you know this can be a valuable time where you get to know Jesus and take that next step in your faith. We want to be able to make this a wonderful opportunity for the people in your life who you love and you care about. And so, of all the problems, of all the things that we could do as a church, of all the things that we could do, we know the thing that we must do. We must address the issue of sin. And we're going to do this. But it's going to take all of us together. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it. Collectively, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can address this issue and we can change Southern Delaware County. We can do this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for paying the penalty for our sins, for paying back this debt that we could never repay God. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you loved us so much that you were willing to send your son into this world on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you for addressing the, the problem of sin in the here and now. We thank you for your teachings. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your commandments. We thank you for showing us the way. And Father God, we believe that as your church, we have to do the things you've commanded us to do. We believe that as your church, we need to address the sin problem. So Father God, we pray over this worship time. We pray over this worship service as we continue forward as a church that Sunday mornings would be a wonderful opportunity for people to get to know you. We pray your blessing over that. And ultimately, what we want to see, God, is what you want to see. We want to see lives change. We want to see the lost redeemed. We want to see people get to know you, Jesus, and find hope and salvation in you, Lord. This is our desire. We believe it is your desire. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.